Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than one million Connecticut residents will be eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine under the second distribution phase that started, known as Phase 1B. Coming up, Dr. Deidre Gifford, Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, joins us to answer our questions and yours about the vaccine plan as demand continues to outpace supply around the country. We also hear from AARP Connecticut about the vaccine rollout now that residents 75 and older are able to get the shots. That conversation later. First, municipalities have been coordinating with local health officials to distribute the vaccine to city residents. We wanted to hear how the rollout is going in Bridgeport, which just lost its health department director. Joining us now on Zoom is Brian Lockhart. He's a reporter covering Bridgeport for the Connecticut Post and Hearst Connecticut newspapers. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Good morning. So tell us about uh, what happened with the Bridgeport health director. This is uh, Lisa Morrissey, who has recently resigned. She was hired um, about eight months ago, and it was very sudden. She tendered her resignation. She did land a new position, a similar position in New Milford. Um, But my understanding was that she was planning to resign regardless of whether she had another job lined up or not. And why so was that, a, Brian? It's not a very convenient time uh, to lose a health director. And, and why was that that she was planning on leaving regardless if she got a new job? What has she told you? She is not saying. I know from having covered her for the last eight months since she was brought aboard last May um, that there have been some questions raised about her by the city council initially when they approved her contract. Some of them had issues with the fact that she was not going to be living in Bridgeport. That was actually a re- that is actually a requirement of the health director's job in Bridgeport, but that was waived in her case. Uh, she's from the Danbury area. Um, some other members, um, I think, wanted some other candidates. There were some other people who had applied, and some council members weren't happy about that. So it was a divided council that had approved her contract, and also there were some employees who were pushing back against her management style. So from talking to folks who are familiar with the situation, it, it seems like she just got fed up with um, the politics of it, I guess, and, and decided to move on. And now the city of Bridgeport is looking for a new health director in the middle of this uh, next uh, wave, as well as widespread uh, vaccinations, Brian. This can't be a good look for Bridgeport to find a new health director amid uh, what you just described as the climate in the city. No, it's not. And they are, Mayor Gannam's administration is, they're scrambling to try and stabilize the department. Just last week, they announced that they're searching for um a health department consultant. And the goal for this hire would be number one, to come in and help sort of fill this leadership vacuum, help them manage, continue to manage the COVID response and the rollout of the vaccines. And also to take a look at the department 
its strengths, its weaknesses, and possibly come up with some sort of a restructuring plan. They're also trying to bolster their nursing staff. There's a communicable disease clinic um, run by the city, and they are anticipating that they will be a vaccination site. And so they are also looking for some full-time nursing supervisor, a part-time supervisor, and two registered nurses to contract with for about two years as they roll out these vaccines. And Brian, who is running the health department now? So currently it's two existing employees. Um, It's a woman from housing code, which falls under the health department and a woman who has been involved with youth programs. She's the acting deputy director and um, she will be getting, her name is Tammy Papa and she will be getting assistance from uh, the woman in housing code. But I think the goal here is for the consult, the city has said the consultant is not gonna be a health director, but I think the consultant is, is they're looking to the consultant for leadership, particularly during the pandemic. And in the meantime, they'll, they will do a search for a health director, but that could take several months um, between when the city lost its health director last year and hired Lisa Morrissey about three and a half months passed. You're hearing Brian Lockhart, uh, who writes for the Connecticut Post, as we look at uh, why the city of Bridgeport has a vacancy in their health department, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, The city of Bridgeport, Brian, has it been hard hit compared to other cities with COVID cases? It has. The number of cases, the number of total cases in Bridgeport as of recent week, as of the latest data from the state was just over 13,000. That's cumulative. So that's 13,000 cases since the pandemic struck last March. I was looking at the numbers yesterday, though, and it does it actually does appear that in the last two weeks or so, um, Bridgeport has done a little bit better. The entire state is still in the red alert zone. Bridgeport, between December 27th and January 9th, in the first week, they had 775 new cases. In the second week, however, that dipped to 492. And if you compare that to some of the other big cities, that dip is actually a larger decrease than in some of the other cities. So it's still not good to have that many cases, but at the same time, at least recently, um, Bridgeport seems to be doing a bit better. It would be nice if we had a health director to sort of put those numbers in perspective, though, because I don't really know what that means. I don't know if that'll be a trend or if that's just um, if that's just some, an aberration that we've seen and the numbers are going to go up again. And Brian, what is the state's role when we hear that the one of the, the, the largest cities in our state is without a health director, uh, the city looking to hire a consultant to help uh, the two people that have been uh, uh, asked to run the department, uh, two people who I understand don't have public health experience? What are you hearing? Right. So the state is monitoring the situation. I know in the past in Bridgeport, when Mayor Ganim back in was first elected in 2015 and looking for a health director in 2016, it took him several months and the state actually threatened to withhold uh, state funding if he did not move more quickly. So there is some pressure by the state to get a full-time health director in that job. So they are monitoring the situation. There's, there's not, there's no reason to think the city's going to drag its heels on this. Um, as you mentioned, it's the way that Lisa Morrissey left isn't necessarily a good look for Bridgeport. I would imagine that potential candidates are going to consider 
her resignation and wonder if maybe this is a job for them or if this is a place that they would want to work. So that may prove a challenge for the city. But at the same time, there could be people that say, you know what, I'm ready for this. It's a big city. It's a great career opportunity. There's a lot of challenges there, and I, I want this job. So we'll see. We should mention that uh, where we live did reach out to the mayor's office to speak with the uh, the acting uh, director, uh, and we did not hear back from the mayor's office. When you talk about a leadership vacuum at the health department, Brian, you're also reporting on the fact that there are several other high-level positions in Bridgeport that need to be filled. Yes, there's there are several acting positions in the city. We have an acting police chief, an acting personnel director, um, acting health acting health director, and I know I'm missing one. What's the fourth one? I'll think of it in a minute. Um, Oh, yes, public facilities. I'm sorry, acting public facilities director. So those are very, you know, those are big, important departments. And it's not that there aren't people in charge running things. It's just that these aren't permanent hires. And there are some members of the city council who are beginning to raise some questions about that because they feel that, number one, if you are acting that means that there's an asterisk by your name. And so maybe you're not comfortable in terms of how long you're going to be there. And so you don't have, you don't have sort of a vision for the department or you're not putting forward a vision for the department because you're not sure if the job is yours. And also they also feel that it just is sort of an unprofessional look for the city, that the city should have these permanent folks. Now I know that there are, Traditionally, with acting positions, sometimes there's a cost savings. I know in public facilities, they have a deputy director who is filling in as the acting director. So you're essentially saving money on one position. You're having one person handle the position. Um, But I think there is going to be mounting pressure, particularly going into the budget season, for the city to act and for the mayor to act and to and to do some searches and to hire permanent people, particularly for the police department, and um, which which really has had a lot of scandals and a lot of issues over the last few years, including the arrest of the police chief. That's why we have an acting chief right now. I'm glad you brought up the mayor again, uh, Brian Lockhart, with us here on Where We Live, a, a reporter for the Connecticut Post in Hearst, Connecticut. Where has the ba- mayor Joe Gannon been in all of this? I- I'm contrasting uh, the city of Bridgeport with other cities where uh, its residents hear from uh, their mayor uh, daily when it comes to COVID-19. I'm just curious what city residents have been telling you about their reaction to Mayor Gannon's uh, presence during this crisis. He was very visible in the first few months of the pandemic. Um, He had a daily, if not almost daily, Facebook Live address that he would give. And it was, uh, and he had updates and, you know, people used to joke, it was sort of like a television, you know, it was like a, it was like a midday television show because he would have guests on, he would have people from the local hospitals on, the health director on. That he stopped that back in the spring when we had, when we entered into the reopenings and it has been kind of odd. He has not done it. He has not, he has not made those type of appearances, even as we were going through the second wave. And I know I do hear from some people, some political insiders from some council members who are grumbling and saying the mayor really needs to get out there more and show his face more. Um, Obviously with the pandemic, there, there are not the number of public events that a, that a mayor would usually attend. And a lot of the meetings are teleconferences. And there's a lot of um, 
there's limited staffing in public in public buildings. So I think just by the nature of the pandemic, the mayor isn't necessarily getting out there as much as he would during normal times. But I am hearing from folks who are sort of complaining and and feeling as if he's he's not he does not appear to be at least publicly as on top of things. He's not interacting with the public enough. He's not communicating with the public enough. His office does send out press releases. I know he appears on a local radio station, I think every Thursday for about 10 minutes in the morning. Um, But that's kind of the extent of it. And there are some people who would like to see him out there more, doing more. We're focusing on public health today. Coming up, we'll hear from Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, Dr. Deidre Gifford. Uh, But I I have to point uh, our listeners to a story that you reported on this weekend, Brian Lockhart, a staffer for the city of Bridgeport throwing a massive birthday party for himself during a pandemic. Tell us what you learned. Yeah, Danny Pizarro. So I did, you know, I do want to make clear because some people have said, you know, we wouldn't have written this story if we just wrote it because he works for the city and because he's, he's close to Mayor Canham. And that's actually not true. I mean, had we heard about this regardless, it happened in Trumbull and um, it was it was a huge party Saturday night into Sunday morning. There was a non, an anonymous complaint to the Trumbull Police Department. They showed up. They shut it down. They haven't given us a lot of details. I did get Mr. Pizarro on the phone on Sunday, and he claimed that he had at least 300, if not more, people there. He, he did say that he had a tent, but a lot of um, some of the party was posted on social media. It was posted on his Instagram account, and that's where it first drew folks' attention, and that's where it first drew criticism because the images there are of a packed party in his house people drinking, people dancing very close together. He is in some of the um, some of the images that were on Instagram. And he, you know, when I interviewed him, he, he was not very apologetic about it. He, I, I mentioned to him that he may face some fines from the state and he said, that's fine. He said he thought that the state rules regarding crowds, um, regarding gatherings, just applied to businesses and restaurants. He didn't think they applied to residences, which isn't true. Um, The governor in an executive order had limited um, events to 10 or fewer people, private and public. So, um, and and he, you know, he said he's not worried about the pandemic. He's not worried about catching coronavirus or being exposed to it. And he wasn't worried about people who showed up. It was their decision. Everyone knows they're in a we're in a pandemic and they decided to come anyway. What's interesting, and maybe this is a question for the, you know, for the health commissioner I, or, or the governor is, it is interesting because the governor has a fine for businesses of $10,000 if they violate his COVID regulations. Um, it's much smaller for, for residents. So Mr. Pizarro, as far as I can tell, at most would face a $500 fine, which knowing him is nothing. He's a, he owns a lot of property. He has a city job that pays about $81,000. So I have a hard time thinking that he is going to have a problem paying $500. So that's the story with Mr. Pizarro. And you mentioned uh, Daniel Pizarro. He works for the city's housing code office. What is his connection with Mayor Gannon again? So he helped Mayor Gannon campaign in 2015. And he was with him quite often on the campaign trail. Then after the mayor won the race that year, um, he eventually gave Danny a job. And it's a, you know, we we call them political appointees because it's a a non-union 
at the time it was non-union unless something has changed um it was a non-union position basically serving at the will of the mayor and he's sort of held different positions over the years and had different responsibilities over the years he and the mayor were quite close for a while and appeared quite often together whenever the mayor was in public and that's that's how they know each other i mean the sort of the background of the friendship and there's speculation about when you know when and how did they first meet did they first actually meet during that 2015 campaign or had they known each other prior to that i don't know there's always a lot of speculation about it just because danny was with the mayor quite often not so much anymore um but they were out and about quite often. You would almost mistake Danny for the mayor's driver or for his security. That's how that's how close they appeared to be. So as a political appointee uh, for an individual that's flouting public health guidance and rules from uh, the state uh, government, as well as a uh, city of Bridgeport worried about super spreader events, Mayor Ganim could have the power to fire this man if he wanted. And I've asked, I have asked if he will be disciplined. The city did issue a statement over the weekend. They did not specify any names, but they did say that anyone, they were aware of this event of Mr. Pizarro's party and that any employees who were involved would have to quarantine before returning to work and would also have to receive COVID testing before returning to work. But there was no mention of any sort of discipline. And to your point, Back in 2016, not long after he first hired Danny Pizarro, we had reported that Mr. Pizarro owned some back taxes. He owns a lot of residential property in Bridgeport. And so we had reported he owed back taxes. The mayor at the time suspended him until he made good on that debt. And then he eventually brought him back. So the mayor does have, you're correct, the mayor does have some power here to discipline whether he will do so in this case, I, you know, I don't know. They may argue that this happened in Trumbull. They may argue that it had nothing to do with his job. But I have put in that request to the mayor's office uh, to try and find out if they will be taking any action against him. Speaking of the mayor, Brian, uh, we know that President Trump has just a few hours left in the White House. And Mayor Ganim has had a presidential pardon requ request in. Do you know what's happening with that? We're keeping our eyes out. I, I I know that CNN over the weekend reported that I guess today was there was supposed to be a flurry of pardons issued by President Trump. Um, yeah, Mayor Gam, he has not commented. We've, we've asked his office about the pardon. He has not commented on it. What we do know is that it was sub, it would have been submitted at least five years ago um, because his he had served his time back um, that ended in 2010 and you have to wait five years before submitting a pardon. So the earliest he could have submitted it would have been sometime around 2015. So whether he submitted it during the tail end of President Obama's administration or whether he submitted it sometime over the last four years under President Trump, we don't know. They do have a prior business relationship when Mayor Ganim was first mayor of Bridgeport in the 90s. Trump, um, who was then just a New York businessman and a developer, was interested in developing in Bridgeport and there was a casino entertainment project that he was considering. It never went anywhere, but he and Mayor Ganim got to know each other. Uh, Mayor Ganim and Donald Trump hung out a little bit in New York. Uh, Mayor Ganim went to one of Mr. Trump's weddings. Um, 
And he was actually very, um, compared to a lot of other Democrats, when, when Donald Trump was elected president in 2016, Mayor Ganim had some kind things to say about him at the time, saying that he thought he was a good man based on their prior relationship. And he seemed a little more optimistic about Mr. Trump's presidency than a lot of other Democrats did at the time. Now, I've got to say, to be fair, uh, he did seem to sour on on Mr. Trump over the years. Um, he, he made some very tough statements about, in particular, his immigration policies, his border policies. But um, you do you do have to wonder if if Mayor Ganim behind the scenes or if anyone who knows, you know, any of his allies behind the scenes um, have over the years tried to contact the president and his staff and, and asked him to consider this pardon. We did talk to one expert who thought this might be Mayor Ganim's last best effort to receive a pardon, that the particular crimes that he was convicted of on um, public corruption, it's not really something that politicians that presidents are interested in pardoning, but Mr. Trump, given his style, given his personality, he may be open to forgiving, uh, forgiving something like that. So we're going to wait and see. So we'll keep watching to see uh, that list of pardons that's expected to come out. Brian Lockhart, again, is a reporter covering Bridgeport for the Connecticut Post and Hearst, Connecticut newspapers. Never a dull moment in Bridgeport. Thank you, Brian, for your perspective on the many issues happening there. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, seniors over 75 years of age will be able to sign up for the COVID-19 vaccine in our state. We talk with AARP Connecticut about the process in place to connect seniors with the vaccine. And later, the acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, Dr. Gifford, joins us to answer your questions about the vaccine rollout. Here's the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Coming up, we hear from Dr. Deidre Gifford, Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. Do you have a question about how the state's rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine or how you or a family member can sign up to receive the vaccine? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. We'll be hearing from her in just a few moments. First, joining us now on Zoom is Nora Duncan, State Director for AA. ARP Connecticut. Nora, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. I mentioned earlier, uh, Connecticut residents 75 plus are starting to get vaccinated this week, and 65 and over are also in this phase 1B. As state director for the AARP, what's your reaction broadly to the way Connecticut has categorized seniors in this vaccine rollout, Nora? Yeah, so we are very pleased that the uh, Vaccine Commission recommended age 65 and up rather than just 75 and up, which was initially considered, and that governor took those recommendations. We were hearing from a lot of people who were really concerned that they would be, um, you know, 1C or whatever, whatever we call it in the age 65 and up category. So I think it has reduced anxiety. Anxiety is still high, but uh, knowing that you're in the line for age 65 and up has been great for a lot of people. And for age 75 and up, I mean, I'm hearing from people, they're eager to be vaccinated. 
Um, they're a little confused about how to go about it in some cases, but we're really pleased. And, you know, 95% of the deaths from COVID-19 are in age 50 plus. So age does matter in this case. And we're going to be continuing to advocate for age 50 and up as we move forward through the vaccine process. Nora, you mentioned anxiety and confusion. So we know that the state lists three ways to get an appointment. They, individuals can sign up through the state website. It's known as VAMS or the Vaccine Administration Management System, or they can sign up directly with a provider like Hartford Healthcare or UConn. And there's even a phone line run by the state. Are there issues, again, when you're talking with uh, your membership at AARP, do people know or have access uh, to the internet to be able to go to this website or even know the phone number to call? You know, this is one of the most mixed bags kind of things that I've seen in a while. So this is early, right? We're not even Mm -hmm. a week in. So I know a lot of these things are going to shake out. But I, I think people do know. And a lot of people age 75 and up use the internet regularly. Um, many also do not, or maybe aren't as adept at navigating certain apps and and different um, sites. So maybe they know how to go to their email address, not a big deal, but when it comes to something more complex, it can be confusing. And Lucy, I've gone through these. Some of it is a little confusing. Uh, A couple things that concern me. There's the request for a photo of your uh, medical insurance, which I think you can probably get away with not doing uh, up front because you don't have to have insurance to be able to get the vaccine. But that can be, it can be confusing to upload a photo if you're not familiar with that. The phone number is great, um, except that you need a email address in order to complete the process. And for you or for I, maybe getting an email address, you just hang on, we take two minutes, we create a Gmail account. But if you didn't have access to the internet in the first place, you wouldn't, you know, and you're using this phone number, that might not be a solution that works for a lot of people. So, you know, I guess I'd say this, I have family in Greater Hartford who heard from their provider before um, the vaccine site even went live. And I have family in Greater Waterbury who still have not heard and we went ahead and signed up for the vaccine. I am not completely sure I understand, therefore I don't think that my members necessarily understand what puts you in one category versus another or why one provider is reaching out and another is not. Um, So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting through this part of the process um, and really hoping that we don't lose anybody between the cracks in this phase um, for the vaccine because of these issues. I I give the state credit, They're, they're doing a good job, but we need to continue with the clarity and the just complete transparency about how things are working, where you get your vaccine, and continuing to encourage their provider partners to proactively reach out to to their patients. You're hearing Nora Duncan, State Director for AARP Connecticut, as we talk about this Phase 1B that Connecticut is in, where uh, individuals 65 and over can start to get vaccinated, that first wave medical responders, healthcare workers, uh, now individuals 65 and older in our state can sign up. I just want to mention that um, if someone wants to go to that state website link, it's on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, to sign up for a vaccination, and there's that vaccine appointment 
Commitment Assist Line at 877-918-2224. Again, 877-918-2224. Now, we talked about uh, maybe some individuals who might have technological barriers, uh, Nora, but when we think about uh, older people who have been most vulnerable for severe illness uh, due to COVID, I wanted to hear more from you about um, how the state has approached uh, making sure that they're reaching our most vulnerable first. Well, I think the intense focus on long-term care settings, nursing homes up front was really key. Uh, that's over 3,200 deaths. Uh, the most deaths have happened in nursing homes. So I think that is when we're talking about risk, that was incredibly important. And I, I commend the, the state for finishing the first round of that work. Um, opening it up to the science and to you know, the people who are the most at risk are clearly age matters as do pre-existing conditions. So I think that we need to continue to focus on this, but we also need to focus on race and ethnicity. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing numbers that the state is going to publish, hopefully sooner than later, uh, about Connecticut residents by age, by race, by ethnicity, by geography that have been vaccinated so we can identify maybe who is being left out. Um, folks who I'm hearing sort of, these are stories I'm hearing. Uh, so there's probably an answer to a lot of this, but it's not clear to me yet. So it probably isn't clear to necessarily the, the residents of these communities. But you know, if you, if you are someone who maybe lives in the city and you rely on public transportation or dial a ride to get where you need to get, that's been incredibly difficult during a pandemic, but what does it mean during a vaccination process for a drive-through vaccine clinic? Um, how do we make sure people aren't being kept out either because of the way we've set this up or because of the way the information is getting out? So some focus on that by the state, really working with the health departments in those towns. I know it's happening. Again, I know it's early, but equity, in this process is going to be very important and equity is is risk factor um by age and by by all the risk factors we know to be true but again 95 percent of the deaths from covid 19 have been in age 50 plus so i think we know where the risk truly lies for the most severe reactions to the virus that's an important point, Nora, when we think about um, what it means to be equitable, meeting people where they are, not expecting residents to figure out um, how to do something. But if we know they're vulnerable, doing everything that's possible to help them so that they don't have to navigate these barriers on their own. I mentioned that um, assist phone line, and that is for individuals who are having trouble signing up online. Uh, but I also wanted to talk with you, uh, Nora, because you're hearing of scams preying on yeah. the elderly related to the vaccine. Tell us about that. I mean, it, it, you got to give scammers credit. They will never let an opportunity go by. So what we're hearing, we're seeing an uptick across the country because uncertainty breeds anxiety, right? And there's uncertainty all over the country about when I get my vaccine, how I get my vaccine. Um, scammers have identified ways to extract money from people. So number one is, you know, I, I mentioned before, your provider may call you, but your provider knows you if your provider is calling you. They're not going to ask you for your social security number. They're not going to ask you for your credit card number because 
it does not cost anything to get the vaccine, whether you're insured or you're not insured. There is no money transacted between you and your provider or the vaccine provider in general. So similar to every other scam, if someone calls you with a too good to be true or a skip the line, we can get you in sooner for your vaccine if you just pay us $75 now. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's happening. So the vaccine is no different than a social security scam, than a grandparent scam, than anything else. It's playing on vulnerability. It's playing on when people get nervous and anxious. Um, and we just need to be on high alert, recognizing nobody is going to call you and ask you for money related to the vaccine, nor are they going to offer you other medical testing and diagnosis along with this for just a small fee. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing. I would encourage people if they receive any kind of scam contact to first notify the police in their town and then also contact the attorney general's office and AARP has a fraud watch network, aarp.org uh, forward slash fraud watch network. We have an interactive map, report it. It helps us report to the FTC and others um, and it helps educate people around the country about the kind of scams that are happening. Nora Duncan, again, a state director for AARP Connecticut. Nora, thank you for speaking with us. Lucy, thank you very much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, coming up right after the break, we're going to hear from Dr. Deidre Gifford, Acting Commissioner for the State Department of Public Health. If you're waiting to ask her a question, keep holding. We'll be with you shortly. And you can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on the phone is Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. Do you have a question about how the state's rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine or how you or your family member can sign up? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, commissioner Gifford, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. I wanted to launch into some listener calls. Uh, Sheila is calling from Northwest Connecticut. Sheila, what's your question for the commissioner? Hi. Um, my parents have signed up with the Vans a week ago, and they haven't heard back about an appointment. My mom also tried calling with, or registering online uh, with the Hartford Healthcare and was told that they're only getting vaccines at some sort of stadium, she said. Uh, and then she wasn't able to get into the Yukon site. So my first question is, are all these sites coordinated? So if you sign up with uh, one, you could get an, an appointment. Uh, say if you sign up with Hartford HealthCare, are you going to get uh, an appointment at John Dempsey in Farmington? Maybe not. Uh, Commissioner? Sure? Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and let me just start by by um, explaining for the, the listeners that there are um, a few ways that individuals over the age of 75 can get an appointment right now for a COVID vaccine. 
Um, the first way is that they may have heard from a healthcare provider that um, that appointments are being scheduled. And if you have heard from your healthcare provider, uh, work with that provider. Whether you're affiliated with Hartford Healthcare or UConn or Yale New Haven or Griffin Hospital, Hartford Hospital. Uh, many, many of these providers are doing outreach to their uh, their known patients over the age of 75. And if you've had outreach from that provider, please work with them. They have a certain number of slots that are available, and, and they will um, get you in eventually for an appointment. The second way is that people can go online, as you mentioned, ct.gov slash COVID vaccine, and they can register for an appointment uh, there. And we strongly encourage people to use that online system. Um, and then the third is there is a, a phone number that people can call if unable to, to use the Internet or they don't have access. In, in specific answer to your question, I would strongly encourage your, your uh, family members to just work with one provider to get an appointment. What we don't want to see, although we understand that people are very anxious to get this vaccine, but we, we don't want to see people having multiple scheduled appointments because then that will take a slot away from someone else who doesn't have an appointment scheduled yet. Eventually, we will get to everyone who, who is 75 years or older. But as everyone knows, we don't have enough vaccine coming in every single week to do this group all at once. So we all are going to need some patience while these appointments get scheduled. Elizabeth's calling from Old Greenwich. Elizabeth, what's your question? Elizabeth, are you there? It doesn't look like Elizabeth's there. Let me try uh, Phil in Farmington. Philip, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead. We are. My wife, my wife and I are residents of Farmington, but we also have a home in Florida. And we are both 65 and older. And um, uh, can we, will we qualify to get the vaccine in Connecticut? Oh, um, good morning. Thanks for that question. Um, right now, we're scheduling individuals 75 years of age and older only. Um, but when it does come uh, up to be your turn, um, residents of Connecticut are eligible for the vaccine. Um, so if you have a, a residence here, you will be eligible to receive your vaccine. I would encourage you to be in the same state for both of your doses. Um, and it, it's probably the most prudent not to try to schedule a second dose in another state. So any individual that's planning to, to travel um, should plan that travel after they've received the second dose of vaccine to make sure that they get it in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And Commissioner Phillip mentioned that uh, his driver's license is now saying that he and his wife are from Florida. So what other identification can they use so that they they can uh, get this vaccine here if that's their choice? When, when you sign up for an appointment in our appointment system, you sign an attestation that the information you're providing is true so they can attest to the fact that they are residents of Connecticut. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677. We have the Acting Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, Dr. Deidre Gifford, on with us to help answer your questions about the vaccine rollout. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Commissioner, that uh, it's, uh, the demand still outpaces supply. Uh, this is still a fairly new system um, in our state for people to sign up, uh, especially if they're uh, over 75. What are some glitches that you're, that you're still working out now? Well, um, Lucy, as 
point out, um, I, the, the main issue with the vaccine program right now, not only in Connecticut, but around the country, is that um, we just don't have enough vaccine yet to vaccinate the entire public. Um, so the governor has laid out an allocation strategy. As, as you know, we've started with um, frontline healthcare workers and individuals that reside in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And, uh, and then this week, we're starting with individuals that are 75 and older. But even though that's a, um, a fraction of our population, we're still getting, for the most part, only about 45,000 first doses into Connecticut each week. So it's going to take some time for everyone to get an appointment scheduled. So um, as your your uh, callers have alluded to, um, there's uh, the phone lines are busy and um, people are going to need to wait to hear back from their provider, hear back from our scheduling system. Um, and those are the main types of things that we're hearing about so far. How do you respond to the Hartford Current story by Emily Brinley that um, even though we are now starting in 1B, first priority is going to be senior citizens, but there are some school districts that staff also uh, signed up for appointments through the VAMS system. And uh, now instead of canceling the appointment, the state's telling them to not do so because that's going to cause some issues. Uh, Does that raise concern uh, with tracking who is getting the vaccine and if it's is indeed equitable, Commissioner? Yes. Um, so that, it's a good question. And um, again, just to clarify for your listeners, the, the second phase of vaccine was only opened up to individuals 75 and older for now. Um, teachers, daycare workers, and other frontline essential workers will be eligible as part of phase 1B, but later, later on when we have more vaccine. Uh, what had happened was um, that schools were able to upload their rosters for their school nurses, um, but some of them they can or prematurely uploaded all of their staff into the system, and then some people were able to receive appointments. Um, we didn't initially want those. We, we thought that was a small number, and we didn't initially want to cause a lot of confusion for our vaccine providers by having a lot of people uh, cancel their appointments. But as we've learned, um, there are more uh, that school staff that have been into, uh, registered for appointments. We are going to be asking them um, to step, step aside, get, uh, leave those appointments for individuals over 75 for now. Um, so we'll be communicating more with schools and local health departments and letting them know that we really do need to keep the appointments open for 75 and older. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathy on Twitter asks, uh, what about older individuals in congregate, congregate facilities run by our state? So we're talking about the Department of Correction, uh, DMIS, also uh, DDS. Uh, if they're over 75 and in state's care and custody, Commissioner Gifford, when will they receive the vaccine? Right. Excellent question. So um, I did not mention when I described who was in phase 1B that uh, individuals and staff of congregate settings that are not long-term care facilities are also part of 1B. We've already begun to um, work with our vaccine providers to uh, get people vaccinated in congregate settings. So that is happening in parallel to the 75 and older group. Um, Those people don't need to call and make an appointment 
um, state and local health department will be working with vaccine providers to bring vaccine to the aggregate settings. So individuals in homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, um, <clears throat> substance use financial facility, uh, treatment facilities, mental health residential treatment facilities, all of those will be working with vaccine partners and the vaccine will be brought to them. And that process is happening beginning now and will be happening in parallel to the 75 plus. And has that been a change from previous weeks, Commissioner? No, that was uh, that was announced by the governor when we announced the 75 uh, plus that we would also be including um, congregate facilities. I think there was some misunderstanding about uh, uh, the question was asked, uh, uh, will people 25 and older in congregate facilities be getting their vaccine? And the answer was we won't be doing them separately. We'll be doing the congregate facilities all together. Um, which is the, which is accurate. We will be doing everyone in a congregate facility all at the same time. Uh, but what was left out of the, of the, uh, explanation was that that process will begin in parallel to the 75 plus. I want to take some listener calls now. You're hearing Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's commissioner, acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health as we focus on vaccine rollout. Uh, more than a million Connecticut residents now eligible to get that vaccine in phase 1B. Elizabeth calling in from Stanford. Elizabeth, we just have a few minutes. Quickly with your question. Sure, thanks. On the morning the news came out in the Stanford Advocate earlier this week, my elderly dad responded, called the phone number, to uh, sign up for the vaccine. It turned out to be the Stanford Senior Center, and they took his name, his phone number, and his email and said someone would get back to him in a couple of weeks, uh, I guess, when the vaccines became available. And then he wanted to call back to ask to make sure it was going to be free and he couldn't get through. When I went online, I found out that they're inundated, so you had to sign up on the Stanford Connecticut portal, uh, the site, to uh, fill out a form. And I'm wondering if he needs to fill up the... They weren't taking phone calls anymore. So I'm wondering if he needs to fill out the form having left the information with the senior center because I haven't heard anything on the radio about the senior center taking information. Commissioner? I would say, yep, I would say to to be on the safe side, go ahead and fill out that form. Sounds like the right idea. And so if there's, just to clarify, the state is asking people to go online through a particular VAMS, but if they're getting information from their senior center, uh, they should, I'm just trying to figure out that question, the answer to that question, Commissioner, just to make sure that it's consistent. Well, um, as I mentioned, um, Lucy, there are a number of ways that people can schedule appointments. It sounded that, like your listener um, had a particular provider that she was interested in having her dad get his vaccine in Stanford and that they had their own form. Some local districts and some providers will have their own on-ramp into an appointment. And if that's the on-ramp that they choose, um, then they should use that one. If they don't have such an option, then they can go online at ct.gov slash COVID vaccine and fill out the form there through the VAM system. Okay, got it. Thank you. Mary from uh, is calling sure. in. Uh, Mary, quickly with your question. This is Mary calling from Torrington. What plan is in place for seniors over 75 who are homebound? Commissioner? Right. Oh, excellent question. 
Um, we are very much aware that um, there are individuals who won't be able to go to a drive-through clinic or may not even be able to go to a provider's office. We are working now with our, some of our vaccine providers who have uh, visiting nurses and other home care uh, capacities within their system. And they will be making sure that um, vaccine is available to uh, individuals who are unable to leave their home. What we have been saying to, to the public is if you um, have a family member, a friend, a neighbor who is over 75 and you think might face challenges in scheduling an appointment or in accessing the appointment for vaccine, um, we encourage people to reach out and offer to assist that, that person over the age of 75. We appreciate that this is a complex um, uh, issue right now. And so anybody who can reach out and help, is, it, I think that would be greatly appreciated. And uh, just to paraphrase some questions we're getting, because we're short on time, Commissioner, uh, Maureen in Hamden uh, wrote, uh, signed her mother up to get first vaccine. When should she sign her mother up to get the second vaccine? Most providers um, will automatically notify you that the second uh, dose is due, and many of them are scheduling both appointments at the same time. So uh, the provider will get that dose. It will automatically be shipped to them, so the second dose will be available. Um, If she doesn't hear from the provider about a second dose, she definitely should call the place or contact the place where she got her first vaccine to make sure that the second appointment is scheduled. It's really important that people get their second dose. Well, we appreciate your time, Dr. Deidre Gifford. We know you had some meetings this morning, so our time with you is short. Thank you, Lucy. Very much appreciate the time. Uh, today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Uh, tomorrow we're going to focus on inauguration both in the morning and in the evening with a special call-in at 8 p.m. with me and Connecticut Public Radio's John Henry Smith. We're going to be co-hosting that special. We hope to hear from you tomorrow. We'll be back.